0: Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. On October 18th, 1995, 67-year-old Charlie Taylor Muntford. Known as Burr, spelled B-U-R to his many friends, was brutally murdered after Wednesday night prayer meeting at the Methodist Church in the sleepy little town of Reynolds, Georgia. He was the last one out that night and locked the church doors, as was his custom when he left. He walked across the street to get in his 14-year-old Chevrolet Impala when two kids jumped him from behind and fatally stabbed him in the throat. The cuts on his hands and the position of his arm above his body was evidence that Burr tried to defend himself from the attackers. Anyone who knew Burr would know he would not have given in easily and would have given them a fight. But also anyone who knew Burr would know he would have given them his car or his money if they wanted or would have even given them a ride. Burr was known to pick up hitchhikers, he was not afraid of the devil himself, and was always willing to offer a helping hand to anyone in need. The irony that Burr was murdered for his 14 year old car struck us all that night, that is for sure. The perpetrators did not even bother to take his wallet. These two young teenagers could have no way of knowing it, but they could not have picked a nicer guy or a more giving and godly man than Burr Mumford to kill. 28 years have now passed. My emotions are still stirred as I even think about that night. You can only imagine the emotions of the people of Reynolds and the Taylor County community 28 years ago when it happened. A few years after the murder, when he was ranking news items for the decade, Jim Cosey, owner and publisher of the Taylor County News, ranked this story the number one story for the decade of the 1990s. I think he was right. When you hear this story, I think you will understand why. For the record, Burr Mumford was not only godly, but he was one of the hardest working men I ever knew. Unless it was Sunday, you would always find him wearing khaki work clothes with a little grease here and there. That is exactly what he was wearing that night. A graduate of the University of Georgia, Burr was a farmer, but he also wore several other hats. He was executive director of the Housing Authority, overseeing what was called project housing in rentals in the neighboring towns of Butler, Oglethorpe, and Marshallville. He also owned and operated a couple of laundry mats in other towns. Since I was a man who sometimes would find myself out in the middle of the night due to the nature of my business, it was not unusual to see Burr riding his bicycle up and down the streets of Reynolds before 5 a.m. His days started early, with exercise, before heading to the laundry mats and later to his office and farm. His days always ended late, except for his last night in October 1995. That night ended for him around 8 p.m. Besides his work, Burr was very active in the Reynolds Methodist Church. In fact, I was one of the fortunate ones who was a student in his Sunday school class as a teenager during the most formative years of my life. When Burr was killed that Wednesday night, it was personal to many, and it was personal for me for several reasons. This is the story of the murder of Burr Mumford and a little bit of the controversial circumstances around it from newspaper accounts and from my own personal memory that is sometimes a little foggy after 28 years. Sometime in late 1992, I believe, a man by the name of Don Meade stopped by my office to talk. Don was new in town, but very personable and had quickly fit in in the community. I had been around him often and liked him a lot. He'd been hired to be the director of the Georgia Center for Youth that we all knew was coming to town. The center would house troubled youth. He came to Reynolds in advance of the center's construction to help get it off the ground and was planning on being here for the long haul to run it. He seemed to love the community. He became active in church and civic organizations and quickly made friends and even built a beautiful home for he and his wife outside of Reynolds. After a little discussion about mundane matters that day, Don asked me if I would consider being on the board of directors of the Youth Development Corporation of America, which was the parent company of the Georgia Center for Youth that was soon to be under construction. Everyone knew the center was coming to our county, but it was not without controversy. Most business owners and rentals who were trying to survive welcomed what would be new jobs and an economic boost to an area that desperately needed a boost. And many liked the noble cause of helping troubled youth. But there were plenty of others who opposed it. The Georgia Center for Youth was a topic of many conversations at early morning gatherings at the local dealer burger diner over a few cups of coffee. Longtime friends had different opinions, and nobody minded expressing those opinions. To be honest, I was kind of on the fence. From the information I'd gathered, I did not think the place would be a danger to anyone, but I understood others' concerns. I just was not a hundred percent sure. So I mainly listened to the different opinions as they were expressed. Due to the controversial nature of the home for troubled youth, I knew it was obvious that the Youth Development Corporation of America needed a few local people to help carry the torch. Don Bond and Homer Barrow were easy picks to be local folks on the board. They were both very prominent and successful businessmen and obviously well-respected. They were also leaders of the Taylor County Development Authority, whose mission was to attract new business to the county. Although Don Meade never said this, I always believed I was chosen to be on the board because my daddy, Ed Goddard, was in failing health. He was most likely their choice to be another local face and a voice for this company, but they knew he was unable to do it due to his health. I ultimately agreed to join the board, mainly because I believed daddy wanted me to do it. I remember going out for the groundbreaking ceremony on Goose Hollow Road in 1993. The executive team came down from Ohio and we joined the other board members from different states. We had pictures taken with the golden shovels. They put us local guys front and center for the newspaper pictures. They were not dummies. Maybe we were, but they were not. This was a big venture for our small community. They purchased 163 acres off Goose Hollow Road, and the construction cost alone was $3.9 million in today's dollars, which would consist of several cottages and other buildings they would employ over 50 people. If you were a business owner trying to make a living in this small town, it certainly sounded attractive. We soon flew up for a board meeting in Ohio as plans were being finalized and to learn more about the inner workings of this company. The three of us local board members went on a small private plane that took about three times longer to get back than it did to get there. Don Bond, who was a licensed pilot, was riding up front with the pilot of the plane. Homer and I were in the back seats. I'll just say the ride back made us nervous in the back seat as that little plane got knocked around as we flew directly into the wind. We were very glad when we finally stepped our feet on the ground. I can promise you that. I also remember other meetings, one particular one at Callaway Gardens. Great food, lots of laughs, and even a few card games. part of the agenda. The point is, we quickly got to know all the players of the parent company of the Georgia Center for Youth. The chief player was a man by the name of Phil Flesher. He was the CEO and president of Youth Development Corporation of America. I'm not sure what the others were thinking, but I was trying to figure him out. To be honest, I never figured him out. My opinion is probably shaded by things that happened later. I know he sure got blamed for a lot when things went wrong. Phil was an easy target, I suppose. As I mentioned, there were many in the community who thought the Georgia Center would be good economically for our town that was on a decline, and it also seemed to be for a great cause in helping troubled youth. Who doesn't want to help kids who are troubled? As I mentioned, Daddy was one of those who was an advocate for the opening of this facility, He was for anything that would breathe life into our local economy. He always worked for the growth of Reynolds. It was in his DNA. Daddy had asked Don Meade a thousand questions, and he was convinced it would be a good thing and would be safe for our community. After all, in its history, the Youth Development Corporation had never had any of their kids cause harm to someone in their community. Sidney Bryan, on the other hand, our family friend and Reynolds native, was among those who were against the Georgia Center coming to town. His concern was that we had no idea how trouble these kids would be and they could be a danger to our community. These two lifelong friends are just two examples of real discussions and difference of opinions that were taking place. You did not see that much in Reynolds. Old friends taking different sides. Then on that Wednesday night in October 1995, about 15 months after the Georgia Center opened, the unthinkable happened. Sidney Bryan and all the opposers had been right. My daddy and those who supported them had been wrong. There's just no other way to say it. It is interesting to note, after all the conversations they had about it, both Sidney and daddy died before the Georgia Center for Youth ever opened. Caitlin Moon, age 16, and his accomplice, Terry Jean Riffle, age 15, had escaped from the Georgia Center around midnight Monday of that week. They had been seen by several people in town, but nobody knew they were escapees from the Georgia Center. They hid out around Reynolds for a couple of days. They had called the facility to tell them they were in Atlanta, and it appeared the Georgia Center took them at their word and attempted to call off the local search. There are many if-onlys in this story One is, if only the people of the county had been notified, the two were on the loose. There's a chance this would never have happened. But we also know, if only, the Georgia Center never came here, it would never have happened. It was also discovered later that Caitlin Moon had recently stabbed someone at the Georgia Center. They were pressing charges and were attempting to get him transferred to a boot camp, they said. Not only were two kids on the loose, but one of them was dangerous. Local law enforcement knew they were missing and had searched for them, but had been told there was no need to worry because they were out of the area. Of course, none of us knew all that was going on the night Burr Mumford was murdered. And I'll be right back. <music> As the county coroner, I had a police radio in my truck. I had just put my brother-in-law out at his house that night on the other side of the block right there in town when I heard the call for help. Rusty Bryan and I had been to a church function in Butler. As I was backing out of his driveway about 9.15 p.m., I heard Reynolds policeman Tim Pike frantically call out on the radio that there was a dead body lying in front of the Flint building Across from the Methodist Church, and he needed help. I was literally right there. I quickly drove over and walked up to the deceased, shined my flashlight, and immediately recognized him as Burr Mumford. The knife was still in his throat—a chilling sight I will never forget. Tim told me Kitty Beland, a Reynolds residence, had pulled up to put a payment in the night depository at Flynn EMC, and noticed a shadow lying on the grass that looked like a body. She immediately took off to find the police. We know now he had been lying there for a little over an hour. I had no idea who had done this. The Georgia Center for Youth was nowhere in my mind. Both Tim and I were looking around. There was no automobile, just Burr's lifeless body lying partly on the grass and partly on the sidewalk in a pool of blood. EMS personnel and law enforcement began to arrive quickly. In just a few minutes, there were blue lights everywhere, and they kept coming. As coroner, I pronounced Burr dead at the scene. Law enforcement quickly secured the scene. After some time, I realized it would be my responsibility to tell his brother what had happened. Burr lived with his brother just down the same street from where the murder happened. I would imagine it was close to midnight when I drove down to their house. As I pulled in their driveway, I remember it being very dark. As you can imagine, on the short drive down the street, I was thinking about how I was going to tell David Mumford that his younger brother had been murdered. As I got out of my truck, the hair stood on the back of my neck. It dawned on me that the person who killed Burr may have come here first, or for that matter, may have come here afterwards. Was I about to confront the killer? I had a small flashlight, but that was it. I had no way to protect myself. I was thinking I probably need to go back and get a police officer to come with me, but I walked up the steps to the back door on the side of the house and knocked on the door. The door had a window in the top half with blinds that were not pulled all the way down. I saw the light turn on and I was bent down looking under the blinds to be sure who was coming to the door. I was ready to jump if it wasn't Dave. Thank goodness he was there alone. I told him what had happened. Those are very difficult conversations, by the way. I waited for him to get dressed and he rode in my truck with me to the scene. I eventually took him back home before sunup but he was there as the crime unit arrived and watched all the processing of the scene take place. David was a calm, easygoing man, just like his brother Burr. He never got excited or expressed outrage, but it was obvious his heart was crushed. Early into the investigation, law enforcement had realized that Burr's car was missing, so they put the description of his car and tag number out on the police radio. Local police had been searching for the escapees of the Georgia Center, so they were putting two and two together. By midnight, Caitlin Moon and Terry Riffle were arrested on the entrance ramp on I-75 South of Atlanta in Locust Grove. They had pulled up at a gas station, got gas for Burr's car, and didn't bother to pay for it. The clerk called the police, and they were stopped before they made it back on the interstate. After a brief scuffle with the officer, They were arrested, and they both confessed to the murder of Burr Mumford. Local law enforcement took off to Locust Grove to bring them back to Taylor County for questioning and later placed them in custody in Columbus. The community was now outraged. Outraged that one of its most beloved citizens had been brutally murdered while leaving prayer meeting at church, and outraged that the murderers had escaped from the Georgia Center of Youth the place for troubled kids that was supposed to be safe for the community. I mentioned earlier this story was personal to me on many levels. For starters, I was the first person on the scene after the person who found him and the policeman who reported it. I was a county coroner. I would be the funeral director who was in charge of funeral arrangements and the embalmer who prepared his body for burial. Additionally, I was on the board of directors of the Youth Development Corporation of America, the Parrot Company of the now very unpopular Georgia Center for Youth. It seemed everywhere I turned, TV reporters and newspaper reporters were asking me questions. But much more importantly to me, my lifelong friends were asking me questions. Questions for which I did not have an answer. And I'll be right back. Not long after the murder and after the news came out about the killers being escapees from the Georgia Center, the board convened a meeting in Reynolds. Several members from out of state joined us. There was a lot going on, to say the least, media-wise and community-wise. The local board members were in the mode of finding out the truth of what happened. The out-of-town board members seemed to be more in damage control mode. They knew a man had been murdered, but in my view, to them, he was just someone who had been murdered and not a lifelong friend and amazing human being as he was to us. As coroner, I was required to take pictures of the crime scene and the victim for my files. I did something I probably should not have done, but I wanted them to see the gravity and the brutality of what happened. I brought one of the pictures to the meeting I had taken of Burr that night at the crime scene. I handed the picture to Phil Flesher and watched him closely as he looked. He swallowed hard and said nothing. My purpose was to make sure Flesher realized what troubled kids at the center were capable of doing. He had been speaking to the press that these are generally not violent kids, and I know that was true, but I wanted him to fully understand the violence they did and the pain they caused. I believe he understood at that moment. Soon afterwards, Don Meade, the guy who had settled in Reynolds with his wife and built a home here, was terminated. Don said he was fired without explanation. I always thought Don was used somewhat as a scapegoat. I'm sure he did not run all things perfectly, but he was dealt a losing stack of cards at the beginning Flesher told the newspaper that Meade was on paid leave until the investigation could be completed. Flesher went on to say that Meade's administration was laxer than it should have been. Don Meade never worked at the Georgia Center after that. Flesher and the local board met with concerned citizens at the city hall in a meeting organized by an upset and frustrated mayor, Julia Knight. That turned out to be a volatile meeting, to say the least. Phil Flesher presented a list of things he planned to change at the center to gain the citizens' trust. Gaining the trust of local citizens would be an extremely uphill battle, if not virtually impossible at this point. Phil Flesher was bombarded with very strong opinions that night, as were we, the local board members. Several investigations were launched. Mayor Knight appointed a four-member commission to investigate the operations of the Georgia Center. The Department of Human Resources did their investigation. The Board of Directors of the Youth Development Corporation of America launched their own investigation. Everything and everybody was investigated. Turns out there were some serious shortcomings at the Georgia Center. We learned that Caitlin Moon had been in a gang previously, but that but they did not discover it until after he was admitted. There was not supposed to be inpatients that had previous connections to gangs at the center. We learn when some institutions need the population to be at a certain occupancy to make a profit, they tend to lower the bar as to the people they will accept. I believe that probably happened also. There were 37 kids in the 50-bed facility when the murder happened. There were supposed to be two managers in each cabin at night, but that turned out not to be the case. They had a real problem maintaining staff at the center, and they were shorthanded. When they began, they did not anticipate that it would be difficult to attract qualified people to such a rural area. Secondly, the job there was not easy. The turnover rate for employees was over 50%. These were tough kids to manage. We knew there had been close to two dozen escape events in the first year at the unsecured campus, but they were captured and back within a few hours thanks to the local sheriff's department. Sheriff Nick Giles expressed his displeasure at the center after the murder and was quoted in the Macon Telegraph as saying, there are a lot of things that have gone on at the center that should not have. The sheriff was frustrated, and he was right. The very thing that some feared would happen certainly happened. But what happened was worse than anything anyone imagined. Burr Mumford lost his life in an unimaginable way. And the belief was his death could have been avoided. And I'll be right back. Georgia Center for Youth continued to operate in Reynolds for many years, but soon under different ownership and management. Recently, the Georgia Recovery Campus was opened at the refurbished campus of the old Georgia Center for Youth on Goose Hollow Road. It is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation facility in a beautiful setting, and it is much needed. From all accounts, it is a special place and doing fantastic work. I lost contact with Phil Flesher soon after the murder and the immediate events that followed. I read that he died in Huntington, West Virginia over 10 years ago in February 2013 at the age of 64. I also lost touch with my friend and Georgia Center director Don Meade. For a while after he lost his job at the Georgia Center, he served as pastor at the Oglethorpe Baptist Church. And I saw him from time to time. He sold his beautiful new home and moved. I searched the web looking for him and his wife, Bonnie, but found nothing. Someone knows their whereabouts. Please let me know. Julia Knight, the former mayor of Reynolds, who was right in the middle of this saga, died suddenly of a heart attack in 2007 at the age of 61. Sheriff Nick Giles retired from being the sheriff about three years after the murder in 1998. He has been senior investigator for Butler-Prather Law Firm for the past 24 years and travels all over the country doing investigations for plaintiffs and civil litigation. David Mumford, brother to Burr, died less than two years after the murder of his brother at the age of 70. Don and Toots Mims, brother-in-law and sister to the Mumford brothers, who I have not mentioned, moved back to Reynolds for Macon upon retirement and live today in the same Mumford home on Macon Street, just down the road from where the murders happened. They're active in the same church where Burr was last seen alive that sits only a few yards from where the murder happened. I suppose they're reminded of his brutal murder every Sunday. About eight months after the murders, as the court was getting ready to start the trial and after the defense made a motion of change of venue, both defendants pleaded guilty. The case never went to trial. Caitlin Moon, the 16-year-old, was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences of murder and robbery. He is still serving time in the Georgia state prison system. He is now 44 years old. Moon's 15-year-old accomplice, Terry Jean Riffle, pleaded guilty to lesser charges. She was sentenced to 30 years in the state prison for voluntary manslaughter and robbery by force. Riffle has been released from prison for many years. She is now 43 years old and lives in Ohio. and her last known employment, she was working for janitorial service. The three local board members are still alive. Don Bond and Homer Barrett still live in Taylor County and never lost the respect of the people of that county. As for me, I sold my business for unrelated reasons and about two years after the murder, resigned from the coroner's position, And began a new career and eventually moved. I am now retired and spend at least some of my time documenting stories like this so they will not be lost for future generations. Some stories are worth remembering. All lives are worth honoring. You've been listening to Bruce Goddard and this is the View from a Hearst podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the social media podcast apps. Thank you for listening. Viewing life from a hearse it could be worse. Laughing and cry with the country undertaker.